So we're going to finish up the book of Ephesians this morning. We've been uh, walking through section by section over the last few months, and here we are, the last section. Diane read it for us, and um, we're also supposed to be done a little bit early. So there's a lot in here, so Lord, help me. Holy Spirit, help me to keep in what should be kept in and leave out what should be left out um, and not keep us here till 1230. Um, So, um, so the series title, United in and under Christ. The only place that's safe ultimately is in Christ. He's our our fortress, right? Um, Apart from him, we're in deep trouble because of our sin and rebellion. Um, He is the ark (laughs) um, to save us from the flood, the wrath of God. So we need to be in Christ, trusting in him as our Savior, but also he's our Lord. And so we are united under his lordship. And we've seen those themes over and over again through the book. And so this morning, as we look at the armor of God, we could say that we need to be united in Christ, under Christ, with the armor on, okay? Having put on the armor of God. Or Like I titled the message, you could say that the theme of this message is we should wage war by means of the gospel of peace. What does that mean? Wage war by means of the gospel of peace. We'll unpack that a little bit as we walk along. Because listen, we are not in peacetime. Between the first coming and the second coming of Christ, it is not peacetime, it's wartime. So actually, one of the schemes of the devil is to subtly lull us to sleep. To make us think, even if we know he exists, to almost be just like people can be practical atheists, believe in God, but act like he doesn't exist. We can be believers that there's a Satan and there's spiritual warfare, but we actually operate on a a daily, weekly basis as if Satan doesn't exist. And we've bought one of his lies right there. So Richard Lovelace wrote this. He says, most of the devil's advantage depends on the ability to move among humans, human affairs undetected. If a thorough, thorough knowledge of his characteristic devices were widely disseminated among the churches, the Christian warfare would be immeasurably strengthened. So that's actually what Ephesians 6 is aiming at, is helping us not be unaware of his schemes or unprepared for the battle, battle that we all face as believers. So Ephesians 6, 10 to 24 is not just like a appendix, you know, kind of a minor thing at the end, you know, tacked on at the end of the book of Ephesians. It's actually some climactic application, some summary application. So this is really serious. This is really weighty. Um, it is a major conclusion, not a minor appendix. So let's dive in and get started. So there's an outline. It'll be, sorry, I was wondering what that was. Um, yeah, on the screen, or if you have the sermon notes with it, you can follow along that way. So first point, stand firm in the Lord's strength and armor. Let's look at the first section, verses 10 to 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Ah, you want to fight against these enemies in your own strength? Without armor, without weapons? No. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So did you notice the repetition of this stand firm language or withstand in the evil day? It's an important theme here, obviously. Paul repeats it multiple times. It's also an important theme elsewhere. So in James 4, James writes, resist the devil and he will flee from you. It's the only way you're going to stand firm is if you resist the devil. Or 1 Peter 5, 9, similar context. The devil's like a roaring lion seeking whom, may, whom he may devour. Resist him firm in your faith. So if we're going to have stability in the midst of the evil day, then we're going to need to stand firm. We're going to need the strength of the Lord. We're going to need to know that we have an enemy. You have an enemy of your soul. You got to know your enemy. You got to know what you're up against. And we need to know what resources we have, what strength we have that's available to us through Christ. So, first, we need to know about our enemy, his schemes, like it says there in verse 11, his strategies. So, if we look at Ephesians, if you flip back to chapter 4, we looked at this a few weeks ago. One of his schemes is to take advantage of our anger because he wants, you know, remember in, in Ephesians over and over again, the unity of the body of Christ, Jew and Gentile, like all kinds of people, God brings us together. We are one new man, unified in Christ and under Christ. And so Satan wants to blow up that unity and destroy it. And if he can use anger to get a foothold, he'll do it. So, in 427, be angry and do not sin. There is righteous anger, but it can easily curdle into unrighteousness. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Second Corinthians 2 talks about how a lack of forgiveness can actually kind of open the door for the evil one. So Paul had been, you know, sinned against by this ringleader in Corinth, and apparently this guy repented, so Paul forgave him, and he says, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I've forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted, outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. So obviously if there's a lack of forgiveness, bitterness in our hearts, it'll just be poison in our souls and Satan loves to catalyze or capitalize on that. We also need to know that, you know, when it comes to the schemes of the devil, he is not going to show up in your life with horns and a pitchfork. He's not that dumb. 2 Corinthians 11, he disguises himself like an angel of light. So it's got to be believable enough, right, for us to fall for his his deceptions. So we need to be aware of that. 
So yes, he's a liar, a deceiver. He's a murderer. He wants to kill you. He wants to destroy your faith. What did he do in the garden? He maximized the restrictions, minimized the freedom. God's a killjoy. That one's as old as the garden, and we still fall for it. He regularly and subtly calls the goodness and the trustworthiness of God into question so that we doubt his character. And he also casts doubt on the consequences of wandering and rebellion and disobedience and distrust. You remember again in the garden, you, sh- you won't surely die. Denying the consequences. He just loves to bait his hooks with, you know, what seems to be tasty, attractive stuff. He loves to create mirages in the desert, and as soon as you go for them, your mouth hits the sand. You got a mouthful of sand. That's all he'll ever give you. He loves to devalue the priceless things and make the worthless things look attractive and valuable. So we've got to be alert. We've got to be awake. We've got to be aware. Our battle is not ultimately between people, but spiritual forces, cosmic powers over this present darkness. So we need to battle in that realm with spiritual weapons, spiritual resources. So this would be pretty um, fitting for the folks in Ephesus. Do you remember? We looked at this way back at the beginning of the series, but if you look at Acts 19, the story of when Paul went to Ephesus and the church was planted there, and he's, do you remember when there were those Jewish exorcists that saw, you know, the powerful, like, you know, casting out demons, and so they're like, oh, wow, the name of Jesus, maybe we'll use that, but they didn't know Jesus. What happened when they tried to exorcise some demons by using the name of Jesus? Those demons taught those Jewish exorcists a lesson, and they ran out naked and bleeding, So, like, this would be very appropriate. Like, there is a real battle going on. We live in the West, you know? We're so scientifically minded. We can have an explanation for everything. And we can get lulled to sleep. But no, we're talking about real forces that are powerful. So we've heard that a lot. If, you, if you've been in the church any amount of time, you've heard, you know, spiritual warfare. About, but, I mean, do, we, do, do you really believe that? Do I really believe that on a given day, an average day? It's often so easy to downplay spiritual warfare and actually think more about the flesh and blood conflict than what might be behind it. So I think it's easy to kind of fall off the horse on either side with regard to Satan's spiritual warfare. On the one hand, I think we can way too easily be lackadaisical and blasé go about our days. We're not alert. We're not awake. We're living as if we're in peacetime. We don't think much about the battle that we're in. But then we can also fall off the horse on the other side. And I think, you know, sometimes we can be too fearful. We can think that we're vulnerable and helpless. I mean, these diabolical threats, and we can just kind of get overwhelmed we could also give the devil too much credit the equivalent of you know the devil made me do it and and maybe you know oh no the devil made me do it yeah but sometimes what we do is we explain our failures and our sin our 
our failure to fight temptation and struggles by saying, you know, Satan was really working overtime on me. And what we want to do is kind of like pass off the blame on him rather than James says that our sin comes from within. Like we're tempted our own evil desires and we give way to them. So again, we've got to be careful here. We can't give Satan too much credit and yet we dare not underestimate the significance of this battle. And over here, you know, we shouldn't be seeing a demon under every rock, but we should and we need to battle in the strength of the Lord. Um, and his strength is omnipotence. It's significant. So not lulled to sleep, not failing to remain watchful and vigilant, but we can also live with a confident boldness. The devil is a fearful foe, but he is a defeated foe. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So 1 Peter 5, 8 be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You can resist the evil one, firm in your faith. And you know who the you is in 1 Peter 5, 8? In the context there, it's the sheep. Because the first part talks about the shepherds, you know, elders, shepherds, and the flock. So you and I, ultimately, yes, I'm a shepherd too, but I'm a sheep as well. And it's the sheep that can resist the devil who is the roaring lion. Like, what? What sheep can resist a roaring lion? Only one that is resisting in the strength of the Lord. The Lord who is the lion of Judah. So by God's strength, God's sheep can successfully resist the roaring lion who prowls about seeking whom he may devour. So, okay, how do we do this? How do you resist? How do you stand firm? Let's look at the armor of God in verses 14 to 17. Stand, therefore, how? Having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Obviously, this is a sword not to hang on your wall. It's not a sword to spread butter with. This is for war. Okay, so how do we stand firm? Here's how. We take up the full armor of God. So think about it. <clears throat> I've read some... Uh, you know, books about U.S. military, about uh, particularly like spec ops soldiers. Awesome book called Fearless. Um, and this guy was a Navy SEAL. And then he got into the DevGru, which is like the SEALs of the SEALs. Okay? And so who gets the best equipment in the U.S. military? Like the cutting edge, you know, best technology. Who gets it? The best soldiers, Right? Like, they get stuff that nobody else gets. Are you with me? Do you know what I'm talking about? Okay. Um, so, do you see what's going on here? Why, why am I bringing that up? Here we are, chapter 2, before Christ saved us. We were children of wrath, sons of disobedience, but we've been made alive together with Christ. 
saved by his grace, we all, just simple privates in the Lord's army, we have the best equipment in the universe. We get God's armor. There is no higher grade armor than this. So listen, you've heard this phrase probably many times. Again, if you're familiar with Ephesians, the armor of God, the armor of God. It's not just armor from God. It's actually God's armor. It's the armor he wears in the Old Testament. Did you know that? So there's several passages that this draws on, but one key text, if you want to flip back there, is Isaiah 59. So, you know, God's people have been, you know, totally unfaithful and rebellious and, you know, nobody's standing up for justice and righteousness. And so God is going to intervene and he's going to save them. He's going to have to do the work because they're not fulfilling their purpose and their mission. And so Isaiah 59, 14, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Um, Back in chapter 11, it talks about the Messiah putting on the belt of righteousness and, and faithfulness or truth around his waist. So this is God's armor. He's giving us his armor. We should be encouraged by that. So what is this armor? The belt of truth. We're going to kind of go through these fairly quickly. Um, And there's some debate as to whether or not these things are objective or subjective. What do I mean by that? Well, let's just take the belt of truth, the first one, as an example, and you'll see what I mean. So we're supposed to buckle on the belt of truth. Does that mean that we need to know the truth? Know the truth? Or does it mean we need to live truthfully, like as people of integrity, speaking the truth, living it out? Hard to determine, actually. But it certainly seems, I think there's reason to believe that those are not two separate things, are they? When we know and believe the truth, we end up embodying and speaking the truth. We live with integrity. So if we are going to actually fight this battle in the Lord's strength, we need to know the truth and so appropriate the truth that it shapes who we are and we speak the truth. Like back in chapter 4, 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head um, into Christ. So the only way you're going to be able to speak the truth is if you know the truth. So we need to know the truth so that we can speak the truth and live it out. Okay, so we've got to put on the belt of truth. We also need to put on the breastplate of righteousness. So is that the righteousness that's ours in Christ positionally, or is that the righteousness as far as us actually living righteously? Well, aren't those connected? 
So we don't, we don't become right with God by doing enough right things and then he says, okay, now you're okay with me. No. Our righteousness is filthy rags and we come and all we bring to the table is sin. But when we trust in Jesus as our Savior, he gives us his righteousness. We give, us, we give him our sin. That's the great exchange on the cross. And when you are right before God, that starts to change you from the inside out, right? And you begin to live righteously. Like, just think about it this way. If you were always on trial, kind of on probation, as it were, with God, you'd always be like insecure. Am I doing enough? And whatever. And you'd be freaking out. No, put on the bre- blessed, breast- <laughs> why is that so hard to say? Breastplate of righteousness. You're secure. You are right with God. You're his. And from that security, you don't have anything to prove anymore. So you can, you can live openly. and You don't have to hide anything anymore. God knows it all anyway. You can be honest about your sin. You can repent, which means if you repent, he gives grace to the humble. So you're going to change from the inside out. You're not on probation, on trial, like God doesn't accept you on your good days and he rejects you on your bad days. I'm in, I'm out. I'm in, I'm out. I'm in, I'm out. No, you're in. Let's pray, pray to, forget it. I'm not even going to say that anymore. <laughs> the righteousness thing, put it on your chest, okay? So do you see how back in chapter four, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It gets worked out. The next one, gospel shoes. Okay, these were the soldier. I mean, Paul's in prison when he's writing this thing. He's got a soldier's chain to his wrist. He's like checking out his, his you know, get up. He's like, okay, I'm gonna, and he's sharing the gospel with these guys. The, the gospel's going through all the praetorian guard, guard, you know, it's awesome. So he's saying, hey, those shoes, they provide stability for the soldier this readiness, they're equipped, firmness of footing, right? If you're going to stand firm. So again, this is, is it objective? Is it subjective? Is it, you know, a readiness to proclaim the gospel of peace? Or is it stability because you believe the gospel of peace? Like, well, is it both and? I mean, is it either or? Is it both and? I think it's both and. When we know the gospel, when we're grounded in the gospel, we're stable and we're ready with an answer for the hope that's within us. We've got good news to share because we know it. So, Bethel, brothers and sisters, we need to get our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. We keep preaching the gospel to ourselves. The gospel is so beautifully unpacked in Ephesians. We're just soaking in it. We're praying it down into our bones that we would know all of these blessings that are ours in Christ. And then when we have opportunity to share them, boom, we're ready. So who needs to hear this week in your life? Who needs to hear this summer? Okay, I listened to this podcast once about our military in the Iraqi war. And in it, there was this guy who served there and he often thought of this sign that hung above the door in the operations center in Iraq. You know what it said? What do I know? Who needs to know it? Have I told them? So think about your life and the people that are 
right now on their way to hell. What do I know? Who needs to know it? Have I told them? Do you need the strength of the Lord? Do you need to really just soak in the gospel so that you're ready to actually tell them when the opportunity presents itself or to go make an opportunity? Yeah. So, I'm glad you asked for some help. We're going to provide it. So, we've done this a number of times in previous summers where we encourage you, we give a book away or encourage you to read a particular book and then pray about who to give it to. So, this book right here is going to be available. Where is it going to be? In the lobby? Yes, lobby, afterwards, okay? So there's a copy for every one of us, and I read this a while ago. It's an excellent book. It's called Who is Jesus? Really accessible. It's just, it's all about Jesus. It's great. So read this, starting now, and then pray as you're reading, Lord, who do you want me to give this to? And then give this to somebody and tell them about Jesus and why they should read this book and see where it goes conversations with some coworker or neighbor or whatever and this would be a great opportunity to say hey so our church has given away this book and I'm excited about reading it would you want to read it with me and then meet up for coffee and talk about it so if that's the case go ahead and grab two copies on your way out okay so feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace soak in the gospel of peace who's Jesus oh man let's just get our eyes fixed on Jesus and then let's share that with others this summer. There'll also be an email that comes out on Tuesday um, with a couple other resources you might want to consider, an article and an ebook that are free, um, and you'll see that on Tuesday. All right. The shield of faith. So this shield, there were two kinds of shields in the ancient um, Near East. You had like little buckler, like the small one, you know, that you'd have kind of the Captain America shield, you know, that size. But then there was also like the big shield that was like, you know, four or five feet high. And this is the one that would protect you from the arrows that would fly. And they, they actually had, you know, um, arrows they would dip in pitch and light on fire and um, shoot them. So this thing was like, you know, four or so feet high, two and a half feet wide. And it was pretty thick. Wood planks covered with metal. There was canvas sometimes in the front dipped in water to extinguish the arrows. So Paul uses that and says, make sure you take up in all circumstances the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So again, this gets at, okay, who's our enemy and how does he work? Anybody know the flaming darts of the evil one? Accusations? He loves to wag his finger at you? Temptations? unsought thoughts that just kind of like, boom, where'd that come from? Whether it's doubts or temptation, lust, fear. You remember the story of Pilgrim's Progress um, where Pilgrim fights Apollyon, you know, which is like him fighting the evil one, and he ultimately resists him and he flees, which is, you know, you could check out the whole chapter. Um, it's an illustration. But after that, then he goes through the dark valley and he notices that these like crazy 
things are coming into his mind. He didn't realize that there's these demons kind of whispering in his ear. So it says this, um, by this time I noticed that poor Christian was so confounded that he did not recognize his own voice. Just when he came near the mouth of the burning pit, because he's walking in this valley and there's a burning pit on the side and you know, kind of pitfall on either side. One of the wicked ones stepped up softly behind him and whispered many grievous blasphemies to him, which Christian truly thought had come from his own mind. It grieved Christian more than anything that he had met with before to think that he should now blaspheme him whom he loved, though in truth Christian had not done that. He wished to stop the wicked thought but did not have the discretion to simply plug his ears to silence the lies that the wicked one spoke to him or to recognize their source. So he needed help with those flaming darts that were coming. And so the shield of faith, how do we in all circumstances take that up and use it against the flaming darts of the evil one? What does faith feed on? It feeds on the word. It feeds on the promises of God. So think about how important, for instance, Romans 8.1 is. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You ever wake up and have this condemning voice going in your head? Kind of like beating you down into the ground? Anybody? Am I the only one? You don't have to raise your hand if you don't want to. The name Satan literally means accuser. He's like a prosecuting attorney bent on your condemnation. So what he does is on the way into the temptation, he's like, oh, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. Like, look how good this is. And then as soon as you take the bait, he's wagging the finger and you call yourself a Christian. So we need to fight the temptation. And then when we fail, we need to fight like Christians. Believing the gospel again and putting up the shield of faith. Jesus is our defense attorney. So Satan is the prosecuting attorney, you know, wagging his finger, accusations. Jesus is the defense attorney. He's our advocate. He's our righteousness, like it says in 1 John. So we can resist the devil and his voice will flee our mind. We rehearse the promises of God preaching them to ourselves. Faith in those promises will be the shield to intercept those flaming darts of the evil one. All right? Helmet of salvation. Again, knowing that we are safe in Christ. I mean, your head's pretty important, right? So helmet's pretty important to protect you. So confidence in what God has done for you that you are safe and saved and rescued is protective. Most of this armor is protective. It's defensive, right? So the sword is offensive, but, and we'll get to that. But knowing that you are safe is important. You can seek the Lord for assurance, and he can give it. The sword of the Spirit. Um... I guess we could unpack this a lot of different ways, but I think one of the best kind of commentaries on what does this mean? The sword of the Spirit. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is what Jesus did in the wilderness, right? When Satan came to tempt him. So Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. He's hungry, okay? He's fully human. 
And Satan says, if you're the son of God, he's striking at his identity. He's also trying to cast doubt on the goodness of God. Like, if God's your father and you're the son of God, like here you are starving in the wilderness. Some father. Why don't you just turn those stones into bread? You can take care of this. Take matters into your own hands because obviously God's not taking care of you. You ever feel that way? Feel like God's not taking care of you. You've got to take matters into your own hands. It's a spiritual battle. So Jesus, man does not, he knew the word of God. He had the sword of the spirit and he was able to wield it and so can we. Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So go look at Matthew 4 this afternoon and see the three different temptations and see how Jesus wisely wielded, deftly wielded the sword and Satan had to flee. So all of this armor is ours in Christ. So remember how this book began? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. This is part of those blessings, the armor of God. So how do we put it on? Okay, just practically speaking. I think I've heard some people kind of, you know, do this kind of mechanically. It's kind of weird, like, okay, I need to do this, and then I need to put this on, and then I need to put... I mean, maybe that's a good mental exercise. I don't know. But look at where Paul goes in verse 18. Point number three, prayer warriors, verses 18 to 20. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert. If you're going to pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, you've got to stay alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And then he invites prayer for himself. And also pray for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in change that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Anybody encouraged, I'm encouraged, that the Apostle Paul, this like crazy, bold, white-knuckle missionary guy, admitted his need of prayer. And what did he pray for? Clarity and courage. Anybody need that? Like, I need that. And so do our missionaries. So let's pray that for them, and let's pray that for ourselves. I mean, look at this language here. There aren't any believers beyond the need of prayer. If Paul's asking for it, we all need it. I mean, I know that I've failed in the past. I I remember when I was younger, you know, college and afterwards, and I had these people that I looked up to. They're so mature in the faith. Have you ever done this? I didn't pray for them, like not because... Consciously, I'm thinking they don't need prayer, but I think I thought they're so mature. (laughs) Like, what? No, Paul needed prayer. We all need prayer. So maybe just look around in your life. Maybe it's a parent. Pray for your parents, even if they're like the best example you see around you. Your community group leaders, maybe they're always asking you how you're doing. Don't assume that they're always just Living in victory, you know, like walking six inches off the ground. Every, all of us, no matter how mature, no matter how strong, we all need prayer. The Apostle Paul needed it. All of us do. Nobody's beyond that. So, 
Let's focus in on verse 16. How important is prayer? Do you see all these alls in just this one verse? At all times, with all prayer, with all perseverance, for all the saints. Listen, brothers and sisters, we cannot afford to be wobbly Christians. Now, maybe I should qualify that. We're all going to be wobbly Christians at times. (laughs) But we all need to be seeking the grace to be strengthened so that we don't fall and wander and, you know, make, make a mess of things. So we are in a battle. We need to be strengthened. Your brothers and sisters need to be strengthened. So if we don't have a solid foothold, Satan's going to get a foothold. Stability is what we need. This text is all about us standing firm. So listen, if we don't pray, we will be easy prey. If we don't pray, we're going to be easy prey for the evil one. And if we don't pray for one another, our brothers and sisters are going to be easy prey. Do you see how this is in Christ together, under Christ together, with the armor on together, fighting the battle together, for each other, with each other? So again, how do we put the armor on? I ran across this quote some years ago and plugged it into my Ephesians 6 notes because I thought it was so helpful. Um, It's by Tim Keller, and I don't have it for the screen. I'm sorry, but just listen, and if you want, we can send it out this week, maybe in the Wednesday email. Pass it along to Gail so she can do that. So at the end of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he instructs the Ephesians to be strong in the Lord and, and in his mighty power. He does not leave that as an abstract directive. He tells believers to put on spiritual armor. Truth should be your buckler, righteousness your breastplate, the peace that comes from the gospel is your shoes or boots. Defend yourself with the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. This metaphor and its sub-images have been fruitfully expounded to thousands of congregations over the years. The basic idea is that all the benefits of Christ's salvation, pardon, peace, God's love for us, that have been objectively secured for us by Christ on the cross must be personally appropriated for daily life. The assurance of God's love, remember chapter 3's prayer? The promise of the Spirit's indwelling presence, the knowledge of our pardon, the access to His presence, the power to overcome our sinful habits, the knowledge of our pardon, all these things are abstractions. They're just words and propositions until they are inwardly received for our actual use. They must not only grip our heart, but shape our life through the operation of God's Spirit. So how do we actually get ourselves ready for life's battles? How do we get strong in the Lord? How do we become so spiritually sensitive that we can discern what's really going on in complicated situations? How do we get the assurance of God's wisdom, love, and power so that we can turn to Him and rest in Him? At the end of the passage, Paul comes out of the metaphor. Did you notice that? He comes out of the metaphor. Prayer is not one of the pieces of armor. There's no metaphor. So Paul comes out of the metaphor and says, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Many interpreters try to list prayer as one of the items in the armor along with truth, righteousness, etc. That won't work because every other item is likened to something like a helmet, sword, or breastplate. When he comes to end, he just says, pray, pray, pray. Pray in the Spirit. Pray with alertness. Pray all kinds of ways. Pray all the time. You can't get more basic than this. Prayer is the way that all the things we believe in and that Christ has won for us 
actually become our strength. Prayer is the way that truth is worked into your heart to create new instincts, reflexes, and dispositions. End quote. That's really important. So stop and think about it. Is prayer easy? Why is prayer so hard? Well, we can answer that probably a lot of different ways. But one of the reasons is because your battle's not against flesh and blood. It's not that you're, that you're tired. It's not just that you have ADHD. There is a spiritual battle because Satan does not want you to start praying. Satan hates prayer. He'll do anything to keep you from praying. Like, have you think about, I gotta take the garbage out, you know? Ooh, that blind really looks kind of weird. I, like, I, I don't know. Our attention so easily fugitive, like pinball. Richard Sibb said this, when we go to God by prayer, the devil knows we go to fetch strength against him, and therefore he opposes us all he can. So think about Jesus in Gethsemane. Remain here and watch. He goes off, prays, and he found him sleeping. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So are we weak and anemic and easy targets because of our prayerlessness? And isn't that like a nasty, vicious cycle? So this is such an important exhortation for us to pray, to put on the army, to appropriate all that's ours in Christ, all these spiritual blessings, so that we can stand firm. So Lord, teach us to pray. Amen? Move us to pray. Help us to make war with the fugitive nature of our attention listen jesus said it apart from me you can do nothing so help us believe that lord that we may be strong in you and in the strength of your might so paul gives some closing words here tychicus is the guy that brought the letter and you know how cool is this letters are important and i think we could all benefit by bringing them back you know, a text is helpful, an email can be helpful, but there are no substitute for face-to-face, and, you know, letters can be so much more meaningful. So we see it here. Face-to-face is so important. So Tychicus didn't just drop the letter off and then run. He was a messenger and a means of encouragement. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, that he may encourage your hearts. So Paul, uh, John Stott says, prayer, correspondence, and visits are still three major means by which Christians and churches can enrich one another and so contribute to the building up of the body of Christ. Simple but profound. And then Paul clo- closes with verses 23 and 24. Peace be to the brothers, love with faith from God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. Peace and love big themes through the book. You can trace them out yourself, but think about this as we, you know, move to close. Ephesians 1-2 says, grace to you. Ephesians 6-24 says, grace be with you. So what's in between? Grace. Grace to you, and he pens Ephesians. It's just full of grace and truth. Pray it down into your soul, and then as you go, grace be with you. One final point here about the logic 
of the Bible and the storyline. Okay? Here it is. The battle is won, so fight. That's the way things go in the Bible. That might sound paradoxical or weird, but listen, two illustrations. One, you probably heard me get this one a while ago. World War II, June 6, 1944, Allied troops landed on the beaches of Normandy to establish a foothold against the Germans, right? Military experts knew that if the beachhead was secured, the ultimate victory was secured, and they were right. Does that mean there was no more fighting? No, there were still battles. There was still bloodshed, but it was over, ultimately. And then VE Day came, Victory in Europe Day. The cross is D-Day. And then one day, Jesus is going to return. So the decisive battle has already been won. So the battle is won, so we fight in his strength. And the ultimate victory is already secured. So we can keep that in mind. Let's fight like Christians. Another example from Old Testament. So first, World War II history. Second, Old Testament. David and Goliath. Think about what's going on there. People of God scared to death of Goliath. David, the anointed king, he was anointed in chapter 16, the chapter before, he goes and fights Goliath and wins. What happens after that? The fearful chicken liver Israelites go after the Philistines and wipe them out in the strength of their champion's victory. It changed everything, right? So Jesus wins the decisive battle. Now we, in his strength on his coattails, we can fight this battle. And ultimately, victory is assured. We have resurrection power on our side. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's why Paul prayed in Ephesians 1.19 that we would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So, music team, I think we should finish with A Mighty Fortress. So I'm going to pray briefly. Let's sing A Mighty Fortress again, and then we'll be dismissed and have our member meeting. Father, we thank you that you have, through Christ, blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Thank you that the decisive battle is won. And even though the fighting will be fierce and real, and we live not in peacetime but in wartime, we thank you that ultimately our captain, our champion, our savior is victorious. He said, it is finished. And in his strength, we can fight until the day when there is no more rebellion, no more conflict, no more need to fight, when we will experience perfect peace and shalom forever. So even so, come Lord Jesus, and in the meantime, help us to be strong in you and in the strength of your might. We pray it in Jesus' name.